going to stand down here. I, I didn't ask permission, but uh, uh, I've only got 30 minutes. Uh, I have figured out that uh, y'all changed services either because uh, Jacob preaches too long and you wanted to cut it down, but you didn't want to tell him to do so, uh, or he wanted to cut it down so he didn't have to preach so long. So uh, turn to Genesis chapter 3, if you would. Uh, and uh, I'm going to forego uh, any introductory comments simply because of, uh, simply because of time. So uh, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Read with me, if you would, beginning in verse 1. Genesis chapter 3. Uh, uh, this should be a familiar passage to you. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has indeed God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called Adam and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Uh, it, if you're a Christian, and I'm assuming most everybody here is this morning, I heard that we got some visitors, so I don't know uh, everybody here. Uh, if you're a Christian, uh, this is a fundamental passage for us. Genesis is exceptionally significant to those of us who are believers in God. And I'm convinced that while it's very fundamental to our faith, uh, in our day and age when we try to talk to people about the gospel, people that aren't Christians, uh, this is one of those passages that we have to grapple with that people don't necessarily accept readily. After all, we are technologically advanced people. Uh, we have iPhones and computers and, and nanotechnology and, and the things that we have seen, the advances in technology in our world, in our day, in our generation, uh, are remarkable to the point that we tend to think of ourselves as uh, smarter than this. That, that this idea of uh, Eve talking to a snake uh, kind of gets in the way. Have you had that conversation with anybody? Uh, do you really believe that Sin entered the world because Eve is talking to a snake. And, and honestly, when people ask you that question, it kind of make you feel stupid uh, for believing it. And, and yet, it is fundamental to our faith. I, I believe this really happened. Uh, Gen, uh, uh, Revelation describes uh, Satan as the serpent of old. Uh, and, and yet, uh, this is something we have to grapple with. Uh, and, and I don't have all the answers for why things played out the way they did, but I, I want to look at this passage from the perspective of instead of being a stumbling block where we're having to explain things that are hard 
that people don't necessarily want to believe because we think of ourselves as more advanced than believing in mythology and fables and things. And that's the way people in the world have relegated Genesis 3. That instead of, of, of looking at it as a, an obstacle to our faith, that, that we learn what I think God intended for us to learn. I, I don't think Genesis 3 is here by accident. I don't think it's here just uh, because God wanted to give us a little glimpse into why we have to deal with uh, sin and, and the consequences of such. I think it's here because God wants us to understand our adversary. Uh, you can study Genesis 3, and actually you can study Genesis 3 and Matthew 4 together and learn everything you need to know about how Satan works. And if we're serious about trying to live sanctified lives and be holy people and be the people God wants us to be, I, I think this is a wonderful passage to study. So what I want to do with the next now 25 minutes uh, is, is offer a couple of uh, examples and points about how Satan works. Uh, and maybe it will help us to deal with temptation. And, and let me just ask you this as we start this. Do you have a plan for that? I mean, tomorrow, today, the rest of the day, Satan's out there, he's real. Uh, God describes him as a roaring lion, as someone who is able to transform himself into an angel of light, 2 Corinthians, uh, someone who is wily and clever in the way that he attacks us. Do you believe that he's real? Do you believe that he's out there? Do you believe that he's waiting to attack you? And if so, what have you done to prepare yourself? Well, one of the things that we do to prepare ourselves for any kind of conflict is we learn what our enemy is like. And so I want you to look back at this with me for a few minutes, and I want to make a couple of observations about how Satan works because he hasn't changed his tactics uh, in however many thousands of years since this happened. And you understand why he hasn't changed, don't you? Because uh, he's really, really good at what he does. And so look, first of all, in the first couple of verses, and, and this is all familiar uh, territory, so I'm not going to go back and read over it over again. But I want you to notice that when Satan first attacks Adam and Eve, when he first offers temptation to them, uh, he does so by getting them to listen to someone other than God. Uh, have you noticed that the first verse starts off with a kind of an interesting statement? The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. I've always found that kind of curious. Uh, and I don't know all of how this works, but Satan clearly is using... The serpent. Why the serpent? Why not come to Eve, you know, as a cow, uh, a horse, a dog, a, a giraffe? Uh, why the serpent? Now, now, I think that God's telling us this because there is something significant here. Uh, serpents are, are canny animals. They are different uh, and and we reel from them. I don't know if we reel from them just because of this incident or if it's because there's just something about them. They're, they're hard to see. Uh, they end up in places that you're not looking for them. They're really good at keeping themselves from getting caught. Uh, they're cunning animals. And I don't know how things were before sin entered the world. Uh, and I'm at a loss to account for all of the conversation here. I, I personally believe, and this is an opinion, and I won't argue with you about it. I, I personally believe that it's very likely that the relationship between man and animals was different before sin entered the world. 
Uh, but that's just my own kind of weird view. Uh, I don't find it necessarily crazy that, that Eve has this conversation with, with, with the serpent. And people go, really? You really believe that? Well, let, let me ask you something. How many of you have a pet at home? Any kind of pet? Dog, cat, snake, lizard, gecko. My daughter has a chinchilla. Okay? Three of you. Only three of you have a pet at home. Okay? Come on. This is a participation. You don't speak out because I know this is Sunday night. We don't speak out yet. We'll speak out in the next one. But you can raise your hand. Okay. Do you talk to your animals? Be honest. Do you talk to your animals? Yeah. Shake your head yes. I know you do. Does your animal understand you? Shake your head yes, because you think they do, don't you? And the reality is there is a fundamental com uh, a communication that takes place between us and our animals, and, you, you know, uh, I, I don't have a problem with that. Man, for, for hundreds of years, has been trying to communicate with, with animals, and there are some levels upon which we can do so, whether it's just condition learning or whatever. I can tell my daughter's dog, go get your ball, and she'll go get the ball. And I'll tell her, go get your hulk. She's got a little incredible Hulk thing, and she'll go get the Hulk and not the ball. Now explain that to me. I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm at a loss. Other than the idea of communicating with the animals is not the obstacle here. Because that's something that we're all inclined toward. The thing to appreciate here is why the serpent? And the reason God tells us, because Adam and Eve identified the serpent as smarter than all the other animals. Do you get that? That's the only reason I can account for God telling us the serpent was more cunning than any other animal. And Satan uses that in some way or another. Eve looks at the serpent and thinks the serpent knows what he's talking about. And while that may seem crazy to us, that's the point that I think God is making when he says the serpent was more cunning. And that's the way Satan works. He's really, really good at getting us to listen to someone other than God. The serpent gives himself out as somebody who knows something. In fact, that's the way he tempts Eve. Did God tell you you couldn't eat of the trees? Oh, and Eve comes to his defense. No, we can eat of the trees, just not of this one in the middle. And the serpent goes, well, I know something you don't know. God doesn't want you to eat of that tree because God doesn't want you to know everything God knows. And so... All of a sudden, the serpent's in a position of authority. He knows something, and Eve listens to him. I want you to understand something, folks. That's the way Satan tempts us. Who do you listen to? Where do you get your wisdom and, 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 and advice about how to live your life? You know, for Christians, we by default say, well, well I listen to God and I listen to the Bible. But the reality is we listen to a lot of voices. We, we, we listen to some radio guy. Uh, I, I don't want to criticize anybody at all. I'm not a political creature, so I can say this. I know some people that if you said it on Fox News, you could get on Fox News and say, uh, the world ended yesterday. And there'd be people who died because they thought they were supposed to because the world ended yesterday. There are some people, if it's on Fox News, it's gospel. And I say that, folks, because... We listen to people that we identify as knowing what they're talking about. 
And Satan's good at doing that. Sometimes we do it with preachers. Sometimes we do it with religious leaders. Sometimes we do it with political pundits. Sometimes we do it with intellectuals, you young people. If you're in school, if you're in college, if you're just getting out of school and you're starting a career where you're looking for guidance in your line of work, you start reading after this person or that person because they know what they're talking about because they've got years of experience. And the next thing you know, as Ephesians chapter 4 says, we're carried about by every wind of doctrine. And, and that's the way Jesus identifies false teachers in Matthew chapter 7, or chapter 5, no, chapter 7. That, that's the way Peter talks about false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2. That's the warning that Paul gives to Timothy over and over about listening to fables and endless genealogies. What's behind all that is we tend to listen to people that we have confidence in. And then Satan's got his foot in the door to changing the way we think, the way we look at God, the things that we believe. Well, what's the solution to that? Well, the solution to that ought to be fairly obvious. Uh, man is not God. And God is not man. And to think of God as man who's just smarter is a poor way to think of God. We, we are worlds away from God in His wisdom. And that, that's why you, you find passages such as Isaiah 55 where uh, God says, you know, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. It's like the heavens are higher than the earth. My ways are than your ways. And, and, and let me propose to us that if we're really going to follow the Lord, something we have to accept as fundamental all the time without exception is what God says is more significant than what man says. Even if we don't always understand it, even if God doesn't explain all of the sequence of reasoning, God's word is not man's word, never the twain shall meet. And when we start giving too much credence to what people say, then we're on the road to giving into temptation. Satan starts that way. Do you see that? This is yes, this is no. You know, we went through this five years ago. Come on, play with me. You get that? Okay. Point number two. Uh, go back to verse 4, and, and I want you to notice that when Satan has got Eve's attention, the next thing that he says to her is, and we make this point pretty regularly when we study this, uh, you, you, you shall not surely die. Satan takes God's word and perverts it. And, and he still does that, and, and he's always done that, and he's really, really good at that. And sometimes we don't recognize it when it's happening. In John chapter 8, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about being the light of the world, and they're in a discussion about who Jesus is, and Jesus points to the evidence that, that pointed to the fact that He was the Son of God, and they didn't want to believe that. Jesus tells the Pharisees in John chapter 8, Satan is, the, is, is a liar, always been a liar, and he's the father of lies, and this is what he does really well. Turn over to Matthew 4. I, I told you there were some real parallels here. Um, in Matthew chapter 4, one of the ironies, it seems to me, of studying about how Satan works is the fact that he tries the same thing on God that he tries on Adam and Eve. Uh, it, it tried and true, and so he tempts Jesus in many of the same ways that he, that he tempted Adam and Eve. And, and one of the things that he does, and if you're familiar with this temptation account in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 5, you, you, you remember that... Uh, he tries to get Jesus turned to the, the stones into bread. Uh, and, and, 
and then he takes him up on the mountain in Matthew's account, shows him all the kingdoms of the world. Uh, but, but it is the one where he takes him up on the pinnacle of the temple. Excuse me, that's the second one, beginning in verse 5. Takes him into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he shall give his angels charge concerning you, and in their hands they will bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Uh, if this was Bible class, I would ask, does anybody know what Satan's quoting from? Uh, you don't speak out, but you can shake your head. He is quoting from the 91st Psalm. And a lot of times we look at this and say, well, you know, Satan is misquoting. No, uh, turn over to Psalm 91. And I want you to notice that Satan, Satan is quoting accurately the 91st Psalm. Uh, the, the, the specific verses that he is quoting at this point are verses 11 and 12. He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands lest you dash your foot against a stone. And, and it's interesting that Satan's using God's Word to tempt God himself. I, I just find that ironic. God said it, and so Satan's echoing his words. Out, hey, you said this. Now, now, now prove it. But what I want you to appreciate is, while he quotes the words, he twists the sense. If you back up in Psalm 91, the way that Psalm 91 begins is, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. The entire psalm is a psalm of trust. Satan's using it to try to... to, 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 try to, to uh, uh, to, to bring about doubt. But the whole psalm is a psalm of trust. But I want you to notice how the psalm works. Beginning in verse 3, Surely He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. Do you know what a fowler is? Man, I'll tell you what. After services, you're going to ask me a question. I'm just going to stare at you. I'm not going to shake my head yes. I mean, I'm just, okay, we're communicating here. Uh, do you know what a fowler is? Have you ever thought about it? Fowler's a bird catcher. And what this psalm is saying is, if you abide in, the, in, in faith in God, God's going to deliver you from a bird catcher. Now, how much sense does that make? Have any of you ever been in danger of being trapped by a bird catcher? Uh, and, and then he goes on and says, he'll deliver you from the perilous pestilence. Now, this makes more sense. You're never going to get sick. You're never going to encounter disease. God's going to deliver you from every disease. And then he starts with this. He'll cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will take refuge. Some of you have been Christians a long time, and I promise you, you've never been under the wings of God. Not literally. And, and, and the entire psalm works that way. Truth will be your shield and buckler. You'll not be afraid of the terror by night or the error that flies by day. You'll never be hurt in battle is the idea. Uh, nor of the pestilence that walks in the darkness uh, or the destruction at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but, but it will not come near to you. We read this and we immediately understand. He's using all this imagery to describe God's protection. God's like a shield in battle. God's like a, uh, a one who would deliver us from a trap. Uh, God's covering us and protecting us. So we get all that, but it is... Figurative language, isn't it? And it's just as figurative when he says, he'll give his angels charge concerning you. If you fall off a cliff, God's going to catch you. Well, 
I can tell you right now, I don't care how faithful you are, you walk out here by the river to one of those bluffs and you jump off of it, God is not going to catch you. But when it comes to protection, your soul, your mind, God's done everything within His power not to defy our free will, but to protect us. And we understand. Go back to Genesis 3. You know what Satan's doing, or Matthew 4. You know what Satan's doing? He's taking God's Word where it's figurative, and he tries to make it literal. He's not misquoting the Word, but he's misquoting the sense. Now, have you ever seen a preacher do that? Have you ever picked up a book in a religious bookstore and seen somebody take a passage out of context? And people do it all the time. And that's the way Satan works. And we need to be aware that that's the way Satan works. And when you combine that with being careful who you listen to, you need to understand that the people who are trying to deceive you that Satan wants to get you to think is an authority are the same people that are going to take God's Word and they're going to twist it a little bit. So what's the solution? Give diligence to show yourself approved unto God. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready always to give an answer to everyone who asks a reason of the hope that's in you. I'd be tempted to, to ask for a show of hands, and I won't do it. How many of you actually give much attention to Bible study before Bible class rolls around? I'm not asking how many of you read through the text. I'm asking how many of us seriously sit down and study our Bible. And I think that's a challenge for us because I'm not sure we always appreciate why we're studying our Bibles. We don't study our Bible for the same reason that we had to study Shakespeare in high school. I had to study Shakespeare. When you're from Lubbock, Texas, and grew up on a cotton farm, Shakespeare doesn't do you a whole lot of good, okay? But, but I had to study Shakespeare, and I did. I studied Shakespeare. I made an A in, in high school English. Uh, I have no idea what Shakespeare said other than et tu brute. You, you know, I, I, I mean, he's a pretty interesting character, but I, don't, I didn't study with a view towards using that. And I think sometimes we study the Bible the same way, that somehow or the other we're supposed to intellectually have an appreciation. Folks, we study the Bible because faith comes by hearing God's Word. The more we learn about God, the more we either trust Him or don't trust Him. The more we understand how He works and how He thinks and what He has done and what He's going to do. And when He says things, we understand what He means because we've studied Him by studying His Word. And then when somebody gets up and says, you will not surely die like Satan did to Eve, we can look at that and go, well, you know, there's a sense in which he's using that accurately. Because if you go back to Genesis 2, it says, in the day that you eat thereof, dying, you shall die. And even Adam didn't die in the day they ate thereof, not, not physically. So there's a sense in which Satan's telling the truth, but you and I both understand God's saying spiritually you're going to die, and that did happen, and Satan twists that. And when I learn my Bible the way I ought to understand my Bible, Joel Osteen can get up and talk all day long about God's blessings in the gospel and we'll understand what God means and what God doesn't mean. Satan's real good at twisting the word. And if we don't understand it, we're not ready to defend it. And, and I would especially, again, I'm trying to harp on the young folks, 
you guys, y'all need to be studying your Bibles. And you need to be studying it so that you understand what God says. Because Satan's out there. And he's going to try to turn you away from God any way he can. Now, let me offer one more. Uh, I've actually got two more, but I don't think we're going to have time for... Uh, I want you to notice also, uh, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, that, that Satan's real good about distracting us. And that's what he does with Adam and Eve. And this is his, the biggest tool in his box. This is the hammer, okay? Um, what he gets Eve to look at is unbalanced. Notice in Genesis 3 uh, when he says, God just doesn't want you to understand uh, what he knows. And so verse 6 says, When the woman saw the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. What is she looking at now? She's not looking at the command of God that says, if I touch or eat this, I'm going to die. Now, that's the first thing she knew, but when Satan gets her attention distracted, now she's looking at it, hey, I'll learn some stuff here. And, and that, that always did look good. I, I, I don't know if it was an apple, uh, you know. Peaches always look good to me. So if it was me, it'd be a big old juicy peach on the tree. Whatever it was, she got to looking at it going, you know, that... that I've always thought that fruit looked really, really good. And, and if it's going to make me smart, uh, and, and, and I'm going to be like God, and, and, hey, now Eve, instead of looking at, at the temptation from God's perspective, Satan's distracted her. And, and all of us understand, if you're mature enough, that, that you're honest with your own temptations. This is what gets us, isn't it? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye pride of life. And we know there are things we shouldn't do. I, I get on the road, if I lose my soul, it's going to be Henry Ford's fault. I, I, I get on the road, and all the idiots that got let out that day get in front of me and cut me off and run around me, and it just swarmed me like flies. And I know the way I'm supposed to react to that. But the lust of the eye just, just overwhelms me. And, and, and I know how I'm supposed to react when my patience is tested or my temper is tested. I know. The problem is, at the moment, giving in to what I want to do, it's not overwhelming. I don't have to give in. But the reality is that's the, the big temptation. And Satan's good at that, and he's always done that. He, he shows Lot all the plain of the Jordan River Valley when Adam and I mean when Abraham and Lot are, are, are in conflict. He 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 takes Bathsheba, uh, has her bathing on top of her roof when David is home while his armies are out fighting, and he's wandering around on the roof because he can't get a good nap in that afternoon. You know, he he puts stuff in front of us, and I believe that he does this. I don't think it's always happenstance when temptation happens. That's not what God says. And, and, and so he, he knows and is good at presenting the pleasures of life or the things that affect us. Maybe it's your pride. Maybe it's your self-control. Maybe it's sexual sin. Maybe it's what you do when you're on your computer. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it is the lust of the flesh. Maybe it is uh, materialism, which we're going to talk about a little bit. Uh, there, there, there's any number of things that appeal to us, and Satan knows. And James tells us in chapter 1 that when we're tempted, it's not God doing it. 
We're drawn away by our own desires and enticed, and Satan's the one who very often puts the desires in front of us. So how do you deal with that? Well, the, the hard answer is you, you and I are just going to have to exercise a little more discipline than we do. You know, the reason that Jesus was so successful is because with Jesus, he understood that uh, if he messed up, there was no salvation. And he would not please his Father. In John 6, he said, I always do the things that are pleasing my Father. If that's what's most important to us, then we sacrifice our own desires for what God wants. But that's really up to us. And, and I think there is a practical way to achieve that. Uh, as we finish, turn over to Proverbs chapter 4 and listen to something that God through Solomon said a long, long time ago about dealing with what's in front of us and our temptations. Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart, your mind, with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Put away from you a, a deceitful mouth and perverse lips. Put far from you. Here it is. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Do not turn aside to the right or the left. Remove your foot from evil. If every one of us would stop in the middle of temptation, and we know when it's happening, don't we? Any of you don't understand when you're being tempted? We know when it's happening. If we would stop and think, what would God have me to do and what's going to happen to me if I give in right now? Do you think if David had looked ahead when he's standing on that roof looking over at Bathsheba, if he had thought it through, do you think he would have gone through with it? The reality is Satan's really, really good at getting us distracted. And if we will remember who we are and where we're going, we'll be a lot more successful. I didn't hear the bell ring. It didn't ring? Oh, don't do that to me. I've, listen, I have been told, I've got emails right here. I'll pull it out for you. You have 30 minutes, so we'll wrap it up <laughs> right, right there. Okay, if Satan gets you this afternoon on the temptation that I haven't covered, okay, you can go talk to the elders about that. All right? Okay, thank you for your attention this morning.